This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Right. Uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to one of the uh, last couple of days of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, I hope you've seen some more events, but we've still got a couple left to go. Um, we're here tonight to talk about um, our video games killing us. I'm Kate Welsh. Um, I'm a journalist, author and Daily Telegraph columnist, um, an enthusiastic but amateur gamer. Uh, I'm here with Cara Ellison, a uh, games developer, gonzo journalist and writer um, whose book Embed with Games uh, takes us on a grand tour um, of indie game developers across the world. And Simon Parkin, whose hard-hitting and compulsive death by video game looks at a very dark um, but a hugely important element of the gaming industry and the gaming world. Uh, can the fuck you guys talk about where these books, these very different books, came from? What inspired them? All right. Um, you go first. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so every now and again, there's a story reported, in, usually in the tabloid press, about um, someone, usually from... Um, Southeast Asia who has died after playing video games for an extended amount of time. Um, it's usually in a look at this guy who was playing video games for 20 hours and wound up dead. See, video games really are bad for you after all. It's, that's the kind of tone of these pieces. Um, and I noticed this happening, I guess, every few months. And it seemed to be that the cases of this happening were um, situated around particularly Taiwan and China. And um, that just got me thinking, what's, what's going on here? Why, why are people dying when, while playing video games, particularly in this one region? Uh, and so that kicked off. It was initially a piece of journalism I did. Um, I uh, kind of spoke to a bunch of people in the owners of the cafes. So typically people would um, sit down in an internet cafe and play for an extended amount of time. Uh, and then at some point, um, the other patrons would notice that, uh, that they had expired. And uh, so I spoke to some of the owners of these cafes and built out a story from that. Um, and simultaneous to that, I've kind of built up a fair, amount, a fair body of journalism. I wanted to do a book that you know, brought some of it together, some of the themes, but also expanded uh, upon it. Um, I was talking to uh, Profile Books about doing it and Serpent's Tale, who, who published the book. Um, and was trying to come up with a, a way to frame it, you know, a book about video games. Why do we love video games so much? And it, it seemed like Death by Video Games seemed like a good title for it that wasn't, you know, too grandstanding cheerleader. Video games are great, you guys. It was more trying to, like, set it up the other way around and then building out from there and, you know, why do we play games? So in conclusion, you find out that it was because video games are evil. Yeah, <laughs> and we shouldn't yeah, play yeah. them. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we're all dead if you've been playing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Cara? Um, well, mine is a kind of a, a weird one because I, um, I more kind of came to writing this series because it was a way of getting extra income, which is not usually why you embark on writing a book. Um, I think what happened was I was kind of a little bit broke because I was, I was writing for I was writing for the, the Guardian at the time, and uh, writing a, a feature about games takes a long time. Actually, it takes a lot longer than you think because a lot of games take about ten to twenty hours to play through. And so um, it, it really isn't cost effective to do that for you know about 200 quid, which is really what you get for a feature uh, usually. And, um, and so I wasn't really making my rent uh, doing that kind of freelance journalism. And uh, someone suggested Patreon, which is this amazing uh, kind of website where uh, creators of things like uh, music or uh, or writing or comics, for example, can put their work up monthly and then they get like a kind of monthly subs subscription fee from people who actually want to access your kind of um, creation. And so uh, someone said to me, oh, why don't you just get some extra income by uh, putting up an essay each month because you have a big sort of followership and you might be able to get, get in extra income from that. And so I, 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 I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. But then uh, there was a, uh, it was post uh, New Year's celebration in my friend's flat. And he had a large amount of Prosecco left over in the <laughs> fridge. And I got a little bit tipsy. And I wrote this giant essay about how I wanted to do this like kind of 
gonzo look into um, like staying, like embedding, like and staying with uh, like the game developers who make like really weird, crazy, cool things and just like fly around the world visiting those people making those interesting things and then write about their lives and like write about you know how their environment and how the culture around them comes into their work and like why they make these things and a lot of them were making them just purely out of passion and so I'd always wanted to figure out like what it is essentially that made them do that because we ask that of filmmakers and we ask writers a lot like what you know what where do your ideas come from and whatnot we never really ask game makers, and I think that that's a legitimate thing to be interested in. So, anyway, I put it up on um, on Twitter. I said, "Here's a link. If it gets up to a thousand dollars per month, I'll have enough for like one flight somewhere. So, if it gets over a thousand dollars, then fine." How much um, did you make? It went way over that, <laughs> and also it was way over a thousand dollars after like an hour or something, which was really freaking me out because I was like, "Oh, I've." evicted myself from my flat now <laughs> uh, which was an accident uh, so drunk me was panicking a little bit I didn't tell my mum for a week after <laughs> that it had happened and um, I had to phone my flatmate Alice at the, at, at the time and go uh, Alice I think I'm moving out and she's like what why and I was like uh, if you look at the internet something has gone on uh. the internet made <laughs> me do it it's a common story <laughs> anyway um Alice was really nice about it, she got a subletter, and I just embarked on this giant trip around the world, staying with like really interesting people, and yeah, it's pretty gonzo, but it's also like, I think, um, Kieran, did, Kieran Gillen wrote the intro and he said, it's open ribcage writing. Which it's I very was, raw, it's very yeah. personal in a lot of ways. Right, and um, I think that's a nice term. He also called me like a, a cyberpunk hair dyed Attenborough, which I think is going too far, but uh, it's also nice. But yeah, so I think basically it's just because I personally was curious about something and also was broke. So the two kind of came together at the same time. And what brought the two of you to gaming in the first place? Uh, I don't know. Simon was in a band, so he was really cool and like before me. And like, I don't know why he... And that didn't work out, so I, I went into journalism. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, for me, um, I, my parents were fairly anti-video games when, mm -hmm. I was, when I was under 10. And then I kind of beat away at them to say, give me a computer and it will be, you know, I can do math on it. And, um, <laughs> and they, got me, <laughs> they got me a computer and then I just played video games on it and uh, then used that as the thin end of the wedge yeah. to get a Game Boy. And so how, how's your math? <laughs> Yeah, so bad. Um, but yeah, no, my, my English was all right. So, uh, you know, I lent on that, I guess. But yeah, and th that's uh, really where it started for me. And um, where, Who did you first pitch to? So um, <clears throat> I was in the last year of university. And um, at the time, I was really into collecting video games. Um, and I had previous to that been into collecting vinyl, which is now a, a thing again. But um, this was the first time around. And um, uh, Records ha have a dedicated magazine for collectible records called Record Collector, where it gives a few kind of interviews with the artists or whatever, but mainly it's a listing you know, thing that says, if you own this record, this is how much it's bas basically worth. Um, and because I was really into collecting rare video games at the time, um, I thought there should be a video game collector, and if there was, I would do it in this particular way. And um, you know, there, at the time, there were no magazines about retro games or vintage games, you know, which are now terms that are in common use. Yeah. But but at the time, the the video game industry was very bad at honouring it, its past. Um, you know, publishers hadn't really cottoned on to the idea that you could delve into your back catalogue and, and resell stuff, you know, which obviously the literature and you know film industries have been doing for for. Um, decades. So anyway, um, had an idea for a magazine, looked in the front of uh, Edge magazine, which is you know, probably the best uh, British uh, video game publication, for just a contact number and wrote to them and said, I've got an idea for a magazine, can I tell you about it? Um, and uh, miraculously, someone got back to me and said, uh, yes, come to, come to Bath, where they're based, and come and pitch us your magazine. 
And I was like, wow, this escalated. <laughs> I was just thinking <laughs> I was going to send an email. So I uh, drove down in my car and I mm -hmm. didn't, didn't have a, a you know, PowerPoint presentation or anything like that. And I just mm. kind of sat down and said, I think there should be a video game collector and I'm the guy to write it. <laughs> and, uh, and they kind of explained how much it costs to launch a magazine and get <laughs> into W.A. Smith. And, uh, and then, you know, kind of downgraded my dreams. And they were just, you know, why mm -hmm. don't you write it as a series of articles in mm -hmm. Edge? And so I did that. Cool. Yeah, Thanks. I feel like there's a common theme emerging here about proposing an idea and the the gaming community really jumping on it. I think that's one of the coolest things about people who like games is that there is like a certain amount of community spirit, especially if it's something that that doesn't already exist mm -hmm. that you can make exist. They're like super into it. Um, and that's why Kickstarter I think does so well with video games. Mm. Um, there's definitely another side to the like the bad side of the community. <laughs> Uh, but I think one of the best ones is that you, they, people tend to want to rally around stuff that, you know, is missing from, from reported on video games, which I think is cool. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, gaming is increasingly becoming mainstream. Just look at the recent ridiculous success of Pokemon Go. Um, it's becoming uh, an established part of the creative industries and it's finally getting the, um, the artistic recognition that it deserves. But it's still got this reputation as kind of dark underbelly of being sort of compulsive and dangerously addictive. What does make it so addictive? I don't know, I think you would be better. Well, I think, I think there's a, one. you know, the, in terms of reputation, there's a few reasons mm. for that. Um, you know, the active verb in, you know, when you sit down with a video game is to play, and playing is something that, as a Western culture, we don't value very much mm -hmm. beyond, you know, uh, how much sports stars get paid or something like that. That's like one of the ways in which we value um, you know, play, but but in general, it's seen as a childish thing, and you and you play in order to learn how to be in the world, and then when you're at the right age, you then work, and um, mm. then you retire and die, and um, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's the wrong way around. But but obviously, you know, we're people who have given mm. a great deal of our you know time and energy to um, you know caring about play, mm -hmm. and and the way, you know the it, the things that they can do for the things that play can do for us in bringing us together, building a sense a community teaching us about the world you know in ways that are relevant beyond just childhood um, but that uh, that reputation still lingers um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know that that's part of it I think also the fact that you know when you we talk about couch potatoes and people sitting down to for a Netflix binge doesn't look particularly great but it looks particularly bad when you you know you're sat there playing video game for 10 hours um, because you've got into the you know the temporal loops of the game and it's very difficult to break that spell what uh, is it that creates those loops what is is there something that makes it psychologically addictive? I think, so I, I actually like to compare, so I, I do love cooking, mm -hmm. and um, cooking is really uh, great. It's very therapeutic, very meditative, because all you do is you follow a series of instructions, and at the end, you get a tangible reward, mm -hmm. right? Something that, I mean, hopefully, that is edible. Uh, That's <laughs> always the, a plus. Most of the time, I make stuff that is edible. But video games are very, very similar. Um, you feel you go through a series of, uh, you know, you go through a series of step, like steps, um, and like sort of mini kind of challenges, mm -hmm. and then and you and you have to learn skills in order to be able to do those, just like cooking. And then at the end, you get a reward. Now, this reward is usually not tangible. Um, even with stuff like Pokemon Go, it's not really a tangible reward. It's just like a little animation on a screen. Yeah, I have not been able to keep any of the Pokemon that I've caught. Right. Pretty disappointing. <laughs> but it does give you this, it does push the same buttons. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that that is definitely why you can get caught in that loop. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because it's very human to like, like we all like rewards. We like to feel good about ourselves and we like to feel like we've progressed in some way. And video games give us that sort of uh, experience of, of progression in, mm -hmm. in, in some way or, and especially, um, you know, if you're extremely depressed, for example, you don't mm. often have the ability to leave your house, yeah. for example. And video games actually give you a sense of self-worth sometimes that you might otherwise not have gained mm -hmm. because, or uh, also like people who are whatever, like uh, for whatever reason are like housebound, it's also like a, a really nice way of, of actually being able to explore a world and be kind of visually simulated without actually having to leave the house. 
So, but yeah, it, you can also meet people over the internet that you would never otherwise meet. And it, at, at university, I met a whole host of people, in fact, a community of people who I'm still in touch with, um, who I used to play Dota with, um, Defense of the Ancients, which is this ridiculous uh, <laughs> Warcraft 3 mods map uh, that has turned into this giant great big thing with Dota 2 and League of Legends and stuff now. But um, I made friends uh, purely through a video game over the internet for a long time. And I wasn't like any, I wasn't like the kind of basement lurking nerd that uh, people often sort of put into sort of a stereotype. I was definitely someone who liked to go out and party, but also was, I had the second kind of life in this other like kind of network of people who just wanted to play this game. And they're all really lovely people who I'm still mm. in touch with. Do you think there's something that real life in a lot of ways can't provide, can't compete with the um, those logical levels of progression you get in video mm -hmm. games, particularly at this point um, in society for people in their 20s and 30s, when most of the traditional milestones are seen as out of reach. Mm. Um, maybe mm. this, does this provide a comforting alternative? Yeah, I think the, um, real life struggles to compete with the dependability of video games. Mm. So um, video games, actually all games present a, ver a vision of reality that can mm. be ordered and understood and, and even solved. and solved yeah. and conquered, right? Um, and that's immensely comforting. Like, you know, in your exams, you might study really hard and then not do as well as you should have done. Or you might wor work really hard in your job and your boss doesn't notice and you don't get the promotion. Um, those things don't happen in games. Like, if you, if you invest your time and your effort mm. into a game, it will, the designer will, it's very rare that a designer will break that bond mm -hmm. and, and not give you the thing that was promised to you. And um, so that kind of vision of justice and dependability and logic and all order is something that um, you know is underpins our, the real world in terms of science and all of that kind of stuff but obviously we also live in an immensely complicated um, you know society and it doesn't always live up to that idea yeah. and there's also um, a level of kind of gamification that's creeping into mm -hmm. like your day-to-day -day life um, two games that I'm particularly hooked on um, is one is the app zombie run which mm -hmm. is essentially just you're going for a jog um, but there's a you know, there's a narrative that zombies that you're running because zombies are chasing you, um, and the more you run, the more equipment you pick up to battle the zombies. Um, or Habit RPG, which is um, set up like a, a role-playing game where you could be um, a warrior or a healer or um, a rogue, but instead of fighting, um, you know, monsters, you're taking things off your to-do list. Somehow, I find it incredibly motivating to do a thing so I can tick it off get pretend gold that I can use to buy a pretend wolf then because, well, I need to do my dishes. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I think part of it is that we all want to think that real life is a meritocracy, mm. right? We all want to think that real life is this thing where, you know, if you are the best at something, you will get recognized and therefore you will get, like, a job in that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we all want to think that we are going to be uh, rewarded for, you know, being good at something or you know, doing something well. And the video games are that reality. They are that reality in which uh, things do run on meritocracy. The goals are exceedingly clear. And once you've cleared those goals, then you get something. And I think that that is really, really appealing. Like, for example, I remember um, someone saying to me, oh, uh, I really love uh, Japanese dating sims because you know, when you pursue a, a guy in a Japanese dating sim, there are very clear ways that you can like pursue them and they're like little girls and you give them a gift. And then they're like, wow, you're so amazing. In real life, dating obviously doesn't work that way. <laughs> you don't have the chemistry with the guy, they just don't care. Um, so it's one of those things where everything in video games uh, to a certain extent, in most video games, I would say, uh, things are meritocracy. And that's like a fantasy, fantasy we all want to sort of buy into because I think we all know that life is pretty unfair, but games are 100% not unfair. I, I would say cool. this is, like, you've put your finger on the actual great criticism against video games as a medium. So always we see the story as video games make our kids violent, they turn us into killers. And we all know that's, that's basically not true. It, you know, they might encourage a, a troubled mind to go down a particular path, but for the billions of people who play games every day, um, they're not 
going out and doing mm -hmm. those things. The actual thing that you can level against them is that in the sense of accomplishment that they give us when we do something, when we play World of Warcraft for you know, 40 hours, um, we're doing that because we're getting an, uh, you know, a genuine, earnest sense of accomplishment. We feel our brain is comprehensively tricked into mm -hmm. thinking, you're doing great stuff that's like, really meaningful for your own progress in survival. Um, and that's obviously a lie. Yeah. And so I think the, the actual effective criticism, if anyone wants to make one against video games, is that they, uh, they can you know, lead us away from actual mm -hmm. genuine accomplishment in our lives. Right, and they simplify things too, too much because in order to make things clear and make things achievable, you have to make life somehow, like, like you have to sum it up in like one goal or one thing that you check off a list and mm -hmm. often like simplifying life is uh, kind of dangerous you mm -hmm. know and again like with the dating sims for example you can't apply what you learn in a dating sim to real life right because it's a great example it's creepy and, <laughs> and games really struggle to do love and relationships because they're so purely transactional mm. and if you try and it's yeah. basically you're trying to turn a relationship into a transactional piece of maths mm. and, right. <laughs> and that's never sexy you can, yeah you can't <laughs> you can't you know you can't change like human relationships into this like you know mathematical equation because it doesn't work we all know that it doesn't work that way i mean i remember uh discussing uh bioware games always have this thing where you basically give you, you know your bow gifts and gifts and gifts and gifts <laughs> until eventually they talk to you and fall in love with you and sometimes i think when we're very young when we're teenagers we think that that's how love works um and obviously it doesn't work that way and also that's expensive <laughs> exactly and so Sometimes it can be misleading uh, in terms of like how simple um, human interaction might be in video games mm. because we have to simplify these things. Yeah. We have to try and make a system from them, and um, and yeah, and ultimately, I don't think that um, like some actually video games have kind of come on from that a little bit because some mm. video games now sort of um, have. Uh, characters that you can, AI characters that you can interact with that for whatever reason might just lose interest all of a sudden, which is much more realistic, but it's less satisfying to experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, again, that's an interesting one, I think. Yeah, um, but you do have the flip side where there are games like Call of Duty and Grand Theft Auto, which do um, promote a pretty gratuitous amount of violence. Is there a risk that people are becoming desensitized? Well... <laughs> I don't know because uh, I think I was a I was a tester on GTA 4. I worked on that game and um, it was funny for maybe about 30 minutes afterwards when I I, I would play the game from 9 a.m. until about 10 p.m. for six days a week. So it was a, a, a pretty uh, overtime heavy job, and it was a broken game at that point. So it wasn't very fun to play either. Um, so it was kind of like just you'd sit in this dark room and just play GTA for a long time. And I would leave the office and walk down the street and all of a sudden I would look around me and look at people walking down the street and be like, oh my God, that person is doing something really weird. Oh, that's a bug. That's a bug. I need to write to someone about this bug. And, um, and then sometimes I would uh, cross the street and not look the right way because in GTA everyone drives on the right. And so I, <laughs> I wouldn't look the right way. And it, so it did affect my behavior, but it only affected it for about 30 minutes afterwards until reality came mm. back to me. And um, I never became a violent killer. And I played this game. That's good to know. I play, played this game for, as I said, from 9 a.m. till 10 p.m., six days a week for about a year. And I never became this like terrible, aggressive killer that everyone... Uh, expect and puts in the newspapers and Simon writes books about. Uh, <laughs> but I think that um, it's it's interesting that people have this kind of view of video games when really um, on the news and in films and on TV mm -hmm. there's all sorts of worse violence I would say. Mm -hmm. I think that there are a number of uh, worse things happening in other mediums um, and I don't think that the like interactive quality of games makes it that much different because we still understand that it's a virtual space. Um, and we don't regard theatre, for example, which is a virtual space. We don't regard theatre as being a particularly um, like, you know, uh, effect, like effective medium to change people's behaviours in, in a, a more concerted manner. 
And I think that theater is much, much more like video games than anyone gives either me medium credit for. So um, that's yeah. my view on it. Um, one thing I would mention in this like conversation mm -hmm. is you mentioned um, Call of Duty in Modern Warfare, which was a Call of Duty game in, I think, 2007. There's a level in that called Death from Above. For anyone who's played that, you might remember. It's a mission where you take control of... Uh, um, I can't remember the name of the attack ship, but it's one of these very kind of high-flying attack choppers that can fire missiles down on insurgents uh, in Afghanistan using night vision goggles. And the people, the soldiers who use it, look on a display, and it's, you see the little kind of you know, green men lit up and then you fire mm -hmm. your things. It's all very remote and very detached. And that level is, if you go on YouTube, uh, the Pentagon leaked a load of videos of its actual soldiers performing these missions in Afghanistan. Um, and it's almost a, you know, in, you can't really tell the difference between the two things. Um, and I think when games are doing that kind of thing, they are participating in the kind of militainment complex, whereby they're desensitizing us to these, like, you know, these images of, um, you know, the, the very, the kind of remote, um, it's not up close and personal mm -hmm. murder, it's very detached, it's like giving you the view of America and Britain is very powerful, we've got very large technology. We're not like ISIS who cut the heads off people. We do it from this very detached, high-tech point of view mm -hmm. and we blow them up and then cheer in our attack choppers. And all of that is contributing to you know, this desensitizing us in the sense that it makes us more amenable to these kind of wars. Mm. And when we've seen it, we, we played it first, first hand. And I think that's, that is also happening, you know, the aesthetic of war reporting on the news. And of course, like in movies, that's all over that as well. But I, I I think it would be unfair to say that video games don't play a role in that as well. I think, though, that is very much about the political framing of what's happening. Like, I think that the contextual, fr like, the way that these things are framed, in particular in games that are about the military, like, you already bought into the premise of, like, being a soldier when you when you buy Call of Duty. You've already bought into that premise. And you're, you're basically then kind of trying to, you're participating in something that is, uh, about the role of the military and I think in general games do very poorly at contextualizing exactly how you're affecting um, people who you're shooting at particularly in those games right, yeah. and so I think that it's part of the problem that we don't actually discuss like what it really is that we're doing sometimes they do um, sometimes you do see like the effect the real effects the, the horrible things that happen but on the whole, you, you don't really experience what the victims of these things are experiencing. Right. Totally. And yeah. video games are much more, uh, have, they have a concerted kind of, um, they, they, they definitely emphasize pleasure over pain uh, or complex emotions in, in general. And I think that that's one of the problems we definitely have to overcome because I personally am much more interested in trying to explore how games can illuminate what it's like to, exa for example, to live in a war zone. And I would right. really, really like to, uh, I really want to make a game about the Blitz, for example, what, what it was like to experience being bombed. Um, because I think that it would be a much more interesting game than just you know, shooting at some anonymous mm -hmm. soldiers um, over a battlefield mm -hmm. or, or you know, We've got um, This War of Mine that came out last year. I don't right. know if you've seen that game, which is all about the siege of Sarajevo. And in that game, it, you know, you're you're holed up in a in a building, and you're, it's a survival game where you're you're the one that's being shelled. You know, you're not. It's not a power fantasy. It's a disempowerment fantasy. Are we seeing more of a trend uh, to video games as an explicit force for good? Definitely. Um, yeah, like, I, I guess as Simon just said, like there is there are, there are more people interested in making disempowerment fantasies these days than empowerment fantasies, and I think that's definitely something that is becoming more popular and more addressed by people who have a you know like who who have a more nuanced view of what's going on, um, and I think that that's really really great. I think there's a I think there's one called. Um, I can't remember. There's a there's a video game that someone made that submitted to the IGF, which was on the iPad, and it was um, I think it's called Pry. Have you heard of Pry? Mm -hmm. Pry is basically about um, a soldier who has PTSD, and um, it's all sort of um, that the experience of the world 
of this one soldier who has PTSD from being bombed, I think maybe uh, in Afghanistan or Iraq. And the idea is that you're kind of reliving, sometimes when you have PTSD, you sometimes relive um, horrible moments that you've experienced. And um, a lot of it is about sort of discussion of that kind of experience. Um, and I was really affected by it. And um, I think there are definitely more and more of those experiences being made simply because people are more interested in making games, not for like a huge profit, but like f just because they want to c express like something that's important to them. And that's definitely what I wanted to cover in the book as well, which mm -hmm. is like people who make people who make games because they're passionate about expressing something that's close to them rather than, you know, like GTA very much um, emulates uh, things that are already in popular media, like uh, GTA 4 was really influenced by The Wire, for mm. example. It very much tr tries to emulate, you know, popular culture movies like Scarface, um, whereas a, a lot of people are making these tiny games that are per about their personal experience yeah. with something. I'm thinking about somebody like Nina Freeman, right. um, who makes games based, has made games based on her, um, her own sexual history and experiences. Um, is the increasing uh, role and power of women in the gaming industry, both as developers and as players, is that having a, a, an effect when it comes to games that are being produced? Um, I definitely think so. Um, what the effect that it has on me personally is that I'm much more excited about mm. where games are going now than I ever was. Um, and I think it's really kind of exhilarating to watch it happen because uh, a lot of these games are much closer to my experience mm -hmm. and, and I'm able to identify with them much more. Um, and that's, you know, that's personally very exciting. And I think um, games like uh, the ones that Nina makes, also Nina joined um, Fulbright Company who mm -hmm. made Gone Home recently. And so they're making Tacoma, which is again, like about a woman in space. Um, and so there are a number of um, games that are coming out now that I think are going to be incredibly important, particularly for little girls. And that's really important because when I was younger, um, firstly, I didn't know it was possible to work in video games. I didn't know that it was uh, like even a job that I, the current job I have is video game narrative designer. I did not know that even existed at that point. And it definitely did because I was playing games that had concerted na narrative in them. And, um, and I didn't know that that existed. And I didn't even know that. And I also kind of subtly kind of ingested this kind of feeling like I personally wouldn't be welcome because girls don't do that. And, um, and that's not something that it was explicitly, like that's not an explicit message mm -hmm. that came out, but it was definitely a feeling I had of like, you can't be a programmer because programmers are guys. Mm -hmm. And so I think what one of the coolest things about this is that not only are video games being made by women uh, more often now and are more, they're more visible than ever, but also that um, these video games are being made about women's experiences mm -hmm. and women's experiences are being held up as being important, which is like, like mind blowing for me Absolutely. And for 12 year old me that was super important yeah i mean i think one really um fascinating example is two teenage girls um in america who went to a coding camp created this um sort of pixelated 8-bit game called tampon run where the whole object of the game was you go out and you get sanitary supplies um you're prevented from doing that by boys who run up and throw things at you you defeat them by throwing tampons at them. <laughs> I, I, that just, to me, represents this kind of glorious sort of sea change moment, um, both as, in, in and feminism as, and in games. And as my dad always helpfully points out, tampons really do look like Scud missiles. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think we're, maybe what we're waiting for at this point, is we've seen all this exciting mm -hmm. development in the independent sector mm. that's, you know, Cara covers so well in her book. We're waiting to see some of that really filter up yeah. to the blockbuster. The, the really mm -hmm. big budget stuff is still incredibly conservative. Um, and it, it might have the appearance of you know, trying to take on an interesting theme mm -hmm. or setting or, or even time period. Um, you know, for example, there was an Assassin's Creed game that came out last year set in the French, Re French yeah. Revolution. Um, that's a very interesting mm -hmm. um, 
place in which to situate your game, um, whether or not they, you know, drew everything that they could have out of that in terms of, you know, you're still essentially stabbing dudes in the neck with yeah. a really, knife. And I really like to call it <laughs> The French Revolution was pretty stabby. Though. Yeah, well, right. I really like to call it Fair, series like, uh, stabbings through history. Like, instead of Assassin's Creed, just stabbings yes. through history. That's what I would, I would buy that game. Yeah. Um, but I'm particularly interested in the fact that it's not the indie games that people are playing for, you know, upwards of 24 hours um, and risking, you know, their health and in some cases their lives. It's the big, it seems to be the big budget um, multiplayer, multiplayer games. Yeah. Uh, do, do the developers, what relationship, what responsibility do they have to the players who are damaging themselves? Um, yeah, that's an interesting Is there a responsibility? Question. Well, I think broadly, so video games could be, if you're, Talking the broadest terms, they can be categorized into two different camps. So game, video games that are sports, and by that I don't mean necessarily FIFA. I, also, I mean anything from like Overwatch to Call of Duty multiplayer. They're all basically sports. It's about expansion of territory. It's about can I hit the guy before he hits me? All of this stuff that we see in you know, the sports that we, we play or at the Olympics or whatever. Um, and the other category is story-based games, you know, ones that mimic literature or cinema a bit more closely. And those games, like Kara says, they, you don't tend to sit down and play that for a binge. You know, you might. Well, because um, they have a definite end as well. Right. So, and yeah. a pace. And, you know, they obey all of the, you know, for example, Uncharted 4 that came out earlier this year. It's a very uh, cinematic game in the sense of, you know, it's quite orthodox in the way it's got chapters and, like, you know, scenes very clearly delineated. And you've got a chance to, you know, when you come to the end of a scene, get up and go and make yourself a cup of tea or do something else. Um, the, the more sports like multiplayer games mm. tend to be, you know, you finish the game, here's your results, like how everyone on your team did, and you've got 30 seconds till the next round starts. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like this kind of endless uh, merry-go-round that's actually quite difficult to get off psychologically to break yeah. yourself out of that. So it's a good question, like, do you, the designers of these games have a responsibility to every now and again, you know, tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, you've been playing for a while, why not take a break? Yeah. Which is like Netflix that checks that you're, you know, still alive because right. you've been watching Gossip Girl for yeah. three and hours straight. Nintendo actually did that with their Nintendo Wii, they had something programmed into it that was like, you've been playing this game for a bit, why don't you open a window? Um, <laughs> and it came up with a little cute, you know, yeah. illustration. But of course, like with, uh, you know, companies like Riot Games who make League of Legends, their business model is, you know, kind of founded on the, yeah. the idea that they can get people playing for as long as possible. But I mean, it's also because, you know, like, you're talking about these things as, as if they're sports, and they are, because, but what video game sports have that real sport, sports don't is that, that that sense of like you know i i pulled a muscle or like <laughs> i i don't have enough energy I'm to play this next I'm game full of lactic acid right yeah. and so there's there's that kind of thing where um you are because you're the things that are being uh the energy that's being drained from you is more a kind of psychological and yeah. um, like awake kind of uh, energy then like you sometimes you can't tell until you you know played a game too much mm -hmm. that you're exhausting yourself and that is definitely i mean i'm sure you know whenever you go to the gym there's like that thing on the machine that says like you know if you feel faint or whatever you know stop exercising get some help mm -hmm. or whatever i'm sh absolutely sure that they have that message simply because some people exercise too much yeah. and they don't realize that you know it's bad for them and uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain that game makers do have that responsibility to like mm -hmm. say, look, if you've been playing this for like yeah. five hours straight, maybe take a break. Mm -hmm. It might be bad for you, you know. Um, and so I think there's definitely there has to be kind of a realization there. Video games are traditionally very, very bad at looking after people. Yeah. They're bad at recognizing that people are human because they're all made of algorithms. And, and you know, like it, it's one of those things where I think we probably could do better at, at trying to treat people who play games as human beings instead of machines for content, you know? Okay. Um, I'm going to open uh, this up to questions from the audience now. We've got, I believe, uh, some roving mics. So if you want to raise your hand. Um, okay, fantastic. Um, so the gentleman in the third row, just there. Hi there. Um, you guys were talking about uh, the concept of love in games earlier, and um, I always remember there was a, a podcast, One Life Left, where they wanted to talk about hugging people as a game. Um, and they wanted to make a game about giving people hugs. Um, there's so few video <laughs> games that are mainstream that are 
concerned with love and I, I wonder why that is is it that it's harder to replicate you know as a binary you know whereas alive and dead is very easy to do um, and love is a little bit more complex or is it just that as an industry it's not mature enough I can't wait to tell Steve that One Life Left was mentioned <laughs> in this room he will be overjoyed um, yeah so I think um it's mainly because I, I asked Martin Hollis about this, because Martin Hollis, uh, he made GoldenEye, you know, the original GoldenEye game. It's wonderful and amazing and uh, changed everyone's life, because uh, you could be James Bond, and it's great. Um, but he, um, he makes games only about love now, which I think is adorable, because he actually regrets inventing uh, games in which you murder other people via guns, because he was instrumental in that first-person shooter genre. And I asked him about this and he said, do you know what it is? I think it's that we early on in video games, we figured out that what's really, really easy to do and satisfying is like the, the way that video games work is they want you to interact instantly with your environment and have a dramatic outcome, right? And a super easy way to do that is to shoot someone. And, um, and early on, people figured out with video games that that would be easy and dramatic and interesting. And so what's happened since the inception of video games is we've tried to iterate and iterate and iterate on that one model. And it's become very, very profitable. And it's also extremely easy to make that kind of model. And so what's happened is that we, we basically just spent all of our money researching how to do that one thing well. And what we haven't done is spent loads of money on trying to do the, the love thing well or the relationship thing well. Um, I mean, I'm not, I, it's not strictly true, though, because what we're really doing is sort of ignoring the fact that Japan has 100% poured a lot of money into dating sims. And um, one of the reasons why uh, dating sims haven't really come over to the West properly is probably because we're incredibly sexist over here. Um, not that Japan isn't, but um, we really aren't interested in marketing to women in particular. We, we think that video games belong to boys. And so the marketing, there's a problem with marketing there. It's t definitely, people still think that marketing video games to women over here are, is a risk. Um, so, but that's not to say that men aren't interested in falling in love <laughs> and that women aren't interested in murdering people. Uh, no, I'm joking. We, we, you know, obviously no one is interested in murdering people. But I think that, um, I think definitely one of the biggest problems is firstly, like the fact that we have iterated on that one violent model for such a long time that we haven't had time or money to spend on the other things. And secondly, that we still generally think that um, shooting people is more profitable and that anything else is a risk. Um, so that definitely is one of the things that's standing in, way, in the way of Steve's hugging simulator, mm -hmm. which I hope he makes one day. <laughs> also, I, th I think games are particularly good at physics and not very good at relationships and, and emotions in the sense of, um, you know, and, and when you tend to, when love is brought into a blockbuster game in particular, say for example, The Last of Us, which I guess is a, a game about love with a father and a, uh, his child or Uncharted 4, which is a love story between Nathan Drake and his wife. Um, they tend to be, you know, these dollops of cutscene that come after the two characters have journeyed through a physical space a bit and been brought together by some difficulty. Um, and th they're good at doing that, but anything beyond that, you know, they're not too good at doing betrayal or, mi you know, it's what, as we were saying earlier, the, you know, reducing relationships to some kind of mathematical form or mm. transactional you know, system is quite difficult and doesn't feel true or right to us. Also, so. um, David Cage has tried very unsuccessfully to bring us sex in video games. Uh, <laughs> it is always a really painful and clumsy affair to watch two people attempt to have sex with each other um, via pressing buttons to get the thing <laughs> right, whatever that may be. Um, and so I think there's definitely, I don't think you can really gamify sex like that. I think, I think definitely one of the things about games is that they're so bad at trying to address something that isn't physical, mm. like that isn't um, something that you can look at, you know, or I don't know, it's, it's very difficult. I, I wrote this uh, article for Edge 
which was about investigating why video games are so averse to uh, using, um, like, or, or focusing on sexual relationships. And it's mainly because, I mean, Richard Lamarchand, who, who uh, was a designer on, on the Uncharted series, he was pretty adamant that it was because actually animation uh, is very bad at, or used to be very bad at like even animating a kiss was very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and it just made, it made it look like two people's faces like mashing together, you know, and it wasn't, <laughs> they looked very clumsy. And yeah, like the David Cage sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, weird limbs flailing everywhere type uh, sex was obviously not very uh, romantic to look at. And so um, basically he said that we should be fo focusing on like uh, how to convey feeling better. Um, and that's usually through not realistic graphics, through graphics that actually convey kind of conceptual, like graphics that aren't like hyper-realistic, but that convey a kind of feeling more effectively. Um, which I think uh, Luxurious Superbia did fairly well. Luxurious Superbia is 100% a game about orgasms, but it's just like abstract um, kind of visual stuff that where you like, you touch it and it kind of like, does all these like sparks and like flares <laughs> and stuff. And then that's pretty much how you uh, conceptually kind of convey sex. So I think that's more interesting and probably better at conveying um, romantic relationships at least. Okay, anybody else? Uh, so somebody right at the back. Uh, thank you very much for a really interesting discussion so far. Um, so I guess the theme of the evening was um, about, I guess, to do with the harm, the potential harms associated with video games. And I guess what I'd be interested to hear both of your views on would be about the potential harms that video games pose to their creators. So in, uh, I guess, Car, in your writing, you talk a lot about some of the I guess the the problems of the development process that can sort of and how that can get leached back into people's lives. I was wondering, yeah, I just um, wonder what your thoughts were on that. Well, so I originally was going to write a big long essay about how um, what really frustrates me about video game development, particularly in America, is that um, in order to so the I think it's okay to say this, but I, the developers of Gone Home, which is like a hit video game, like a really great independent video game that everyone really likes and was like critically acclaimed. Um, it, it basically required that Steve Gaynor and Carlos Zamanja uh, leave their job on the big Bioshock franchise, like a big budget kind of salary. And they, they had saved a ton of money from working on that game. And then use that money to then like develop this video game through like a year and a bit, I think it was, and then um, and then hope that it would provide a return for them. And I met Steve Gaynor in Brighton just after he'd released that game, and he said to me, "Phew, now we can buy health insurance." And I think part of me was completely horrified by that, and I said to him, like, "What would have happened if during the development of this game?" you or anyone in your staff fell sick because everyone, there were like four or five people working on that game, wasn't a big team. If one of them had got sick, the game would just wouldn't have come out. And he said, well, they would have got sick and we wouldn't have finished the game. And I'm like, well, if you wouldn't have finished the game, then how would you have survived? You put all of your life savings into this one thing. And he said, well, we just, we don't think about that. We just wouldn't have thought about that. We didn't want to think about it. And I don't know, there's a lot of uh, my friends who are developers uh, who are making their own games in the US uh, and they do not have that kind of safety net that we take for granted here and which is obviously currently being dismantled. Um, and it just made me extremely, extremely sad. And I think what, what I would really like to happen is a little bit more support for those kind of uh, games that are, you know, more artistic and more interested in taking risks, I would really like to see some support for that institutionally, in, institutionally really, um, because I think that Gone Home is probably going to reach a lot of generation of young people and be very important to them. And it's a new, instant, interesting game that addresses a lot of things that are important to life. So yeah, those are my feelings. Um, 
And I think that when I wrote this book, I went around a lot of different countries around the world um, and a number of different developers would outline things that were dangerous for them to address. For example, in Malaysia, no, Singapore, I talked to developers who were putting a gay character in their game and it's totally illegal to be gay in uh, Singapore and they probably um, would are going to get into a lot of trouble for doing that, uh, for developing a game in which there's a gay character and it's normal, is, um, is probably going to create some kind of political ripple in that country. And there's also um, uh, Catherine Neal, who made Escape from Umra, uh, which is a, a game in the Half-Life engine, which essentially created a massive, massive argument in the Australian parliament because uh, she made this game about detention, uh, Woomera Detention Centre, which is for asylum seekers in Australia. The UN have condemned all of the de uh, detention centres in Australia and said, you know, I mean, some, some kids are born into the detention centres there. Uh, and it's a, a pretty sorry state of affairs. And she made this game with uh, Australian Arts Council funding. And um, there was a huge argument in Parliament about it. It created this massive firestorm. Uh, the left said it was trivialising the issue, and the right said um, this is an embarrassment to Australia that we have given money to this project uh, that is humiliating us and our detention centres are absolutely legal, etc. And, um, and people, it got into the New York Times, like it went all around the world that this video game had been made. And... Um, and re really, uh, ever since that has happened, there have been no, there's been no arts, um, Australian Arts Council funding put towards a video game ever again, even though that one video game was perhaps the most important video game that Australia has ever produced, uh, perhaps the world has ever produced, because it really did actually make a difference. People were in the comments sections asking, like, should we be considering video games as an artistic medium? Because I didn't hear about these issues before this was discussed. Um, and so I, I definitely think that there are a number of things that video games are trying to address that are, um, you know, they're different from country to country, but there are a lot of obstacles there. Um, I'd certainly, certainly Catherine Neal could have been fired from her job at Atari for even, even addressing political issues. So again, that's uh, one that I came up against a lot. Simon, what do you think? Um, well, I think in d if you if you you know in addition to everything that Carlos talked about there, if you're talking about crunch, which is a, a term that's very well known in the video game industry, which is where um, lots of you know good people uh, basically you know work themselves almost to the point of death mm. uh, to get a game finished. Um, I think. From from what I can see, the industry's getting slowly better at this. But you you have to think whenever a, a designer set, sits down to create a video game, they're they're taking on the role of really a, a creator god. They they're going to conjure this world into being. They have to make all these decisions about you know how does gravity work? You know, am I going to have birds in this game? Am I is you know what's the viscosity of water? All of this stuff that is you know not insubstantial. Um, you know, your game might not have birds and, and water, but but uh, you know that's just an example of the kind of things that you're having to do. You're having to conjure a world uh, into being in order to make your game, and that takes a lot of manpower, a lot of effort. Um, even if you're using a third-party engine, of which there are now now many that lots of game makers uh, use to make their games more quickly. You still have to customize it, create all of your character assets, you know, all of this stuff. So um, that's part of the reason why I think you know people kill themselves while making video games is that they, you know, there's so much work, there's so much labor just to get to the point where you have a world that you know is sort of functioning, and then you can start thinking about what game you're going to put in it. Um, and so that's part of the reason why, why it's incredibly labour-intensive. And you know, if you look at No Man's Sky, which is a game that came out very recently that I'm sure many of you will have heard about, it's a game made by 12 people. It's ludicrously large, um, 18 quint 
reptilian um, planets that you can take off from a planet, you can you know, fly to the next one, and it would take you your whole life to visit them all. And they were kind of trying to make the point of, you know, it is possible through algorithms and through some clever uh, manipulation to create a, you know, a lot of bulk uh, in your games with a very small team. But at the same time, you know, knowing those guys, I also know that they worked incredibly hard and, uh, and not mm -hmm. done yet. And <laughs> so you know, their, their example of, oh, small teams can make very large games, um, it hasn't quite borne out, I think, in, in, that, in that particular example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's easy to talk about um, the dilatorious effect that gaming can have on gamers, but it's a very difficult and occasionally hostile world to, to actually create the product in in the first place. Yeah, and actually it's interesting because I was speaking to a lot of, um, of theatre practitioners mm -hmm. about video games and I suddenly realised that people who make video games, they are not only, they have to undertake the role of director, uh, set constructor, uh, props artist, uh, they also have to take the part of the actor because they're making uh, characters. They have to uh, be the writer and the scripter. They have to uh, they have to do lighting. Lighting is very very difficult, as I recently found out in my day job. I mean, there are a number of things like audio, um, sound tracking, and you have if you're making a game by yourself, you have to do all of those things by yourself. And um, and it suddenly realized I suddenly realized that that role is just if you try to explain that to a theater person they'd be baffled about you doing that all by yourself and some of the people in the book that i cover they did it all by themselves and they've like they've produced these masterpieces but they have to be you know fully they have to be fully kind of knowledgeable about drama about lighting about sound about the way that these things intersect even if you're on a giant team full of people you have to know how the audio is going to work in the part of the game that you're making or you have to know like what kind of story is being told in the space of the game that you're making and so if you think about it in those terms i think that we would value game creators much more artistically than we're already uh, valuing them Fantastic. Uh, we've got time for, I think, one more question. Uh, so the uh, woman at the back in the red top. Hi there. I'm interested in the gender stereotyping that you can get in video games. Um, and also I was interested in what you said about desensitisation and how you feel after you have um, played video games for long periods. Um, and what I'm interested in being a mum of three boys is really if you have a 12, 13, 14 year old boy, do you think gaming increases or decreases respect for women um, subsequent to playing games, especially in light of things like Grand Theft Auto or the more mainstream games rather than the independent ones that you've focused on? Yeah, I think it really depends on what kind of games that they are playing. Um, I think one of the best things you could possibly do is to try to get a little more in, involved in like the content of what the like the games have in them because I think a cool thing is um, that there are such a variety of games out there and um, as soon as your kids are really really interested in playing video games I, I think it's actually like really amazing for them to have a parent who's interested in indulging them in that kind of hobby. Um, but also if you get involved with it, it, it probably means that you can try and shape their tastes mm. in that kind of way. And um, I don't think that, I mean, the, the thing about GTA mainly is that um, it, it takes this point of view of only male protagonists and, um, and only of male protagonists who are kind of terrible people. And um, there are plenty of games out there that take the point of view, for example, of, of a girl or a woman um, and who that have um, entirely um, like worlds that are entirely uh, devoid of gender, for example, like Katamari Damacy is like an incredible video game. And it's all about like ruling up the world and the nature of the cosmos and all of that stuff. And it's an incredible game. And um, I don't think it really makes use of gender at all. Um, and so there are definitely ways in which you can kind of get more involved in like looking at um, 
the kind of taste that you you want your kids to have like there's there's so much out there and it's not very expensive to indulge in these kind of smaller games either and so um maybe maybe having a little look i mean simon's a parent so mm -hmm. simon probably has a better idea of this but mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think it's a it's a important question that any parent wrestles with i think it's probably a slightly unfair question because you wouldn't say do you think the full body of cinema um you know, helps people view women in a positive way or a negative way. It very much depends on the text, doesn't it? Um, now, in video games, I would say there's probably a disproportionate number of games that are awful towards women and don't do helpful uh, representation. So, but you so could probably say that about the majority of the cinematic. Canon. I mean, blockbuster, right. Hollywood blockbuster movies are incredibly yeah. sexist, and I don't think that we would, any of us, would say, oh, you know, like you can learn great things about gender mm -hmm. roles, but. At the same time, I think we have to recognise that those, thing, those things are popular and we might yep. have to talk to our kids about it. I mean, I would say we're at a moment right now, not just in video games, but throughout you know, culture where we are engaging with this stuff a lot better than we have before. Um, you know, the, what's permissible in, in advertisements in the summer on the tube mm. was a big topic, wasn't it, with Unilever, mm. like what, what are they going to put up about are you beach body ready and all that kind of stuff and obviously in if you look at the series that netflix is commissioning now the writing tends to be a lot more robust in terms of um diversity of cast and also you know the just not being horrible in terms of representation or the, or the messages that it's giving and and there's absolutely you know a lot of conversation about this happening in the video game industry um uh, and you know, there's a, there's a number of high-profile feminist, you know, writers and critics, you know, of which Cara is one, you know, writing about this stuff um, from a women's perspective. And I know for a fact that you know some of those people are being invited into major studios to to talk to the teams to say, look, have you thought about this when you're uh, with your writing or with your the art direction? Um, so things are improving, but. Um, but yes, I, basically, Cara's advice is sound. Just uh, be engaged, and and I know it can be difficult. You know, if you've got a twelve-year-old who's really into a particular game, and you think the costumes on those women are just awful and not helpful, and and he's like, well, you know, that's not the point. It's not about the costumes. I'm just having a fun time, and those are difficult debates. But um, what do your what does your daughter play? Um, so w we just played Uncharted 4, we played through that together and had a really good time and I think, you know, that's, uh, yeah, it's difficult. I don't think, basically I do adhere by the age ratings on these games so I wouldn't let, um, you know, a kid, I wouldn't let a 13 year old play a Grand Theft Auto for example. I think they're, they're not only good guidelines, I think they're also legal, legally enforceable yeah, at the yeah. point of sale. So, you know, s stick within those boundaries and, you know, they're pretty good at, at figuring out, you know, offering a safety net for you. My advice is to go on Steam. Steam is a PC-based, yeah. um, like, a kind of application that basically lists all of, like, these uh, PC-based uh, video games. And you can, you can buy any, any number of, like, tiny little sort of maybe, like, our experiences that may have like female protagonists that are really surprising and interesting and, and often very story-based. Um, Steam is like this incredible place because it's a giant library that you know people from all over the world can submit their games to um, and I really recommend like ha having a look on Steam um, for something that is more woman oriented if you're interested in that. Absolutely and I think also if it's you're trying to hook somebody who isn't particularly interested in what they see as games. Mm. Um, the variety of stuff on Steam there has drawn a lot of really diverse audiences. For sure, and then there's also like, I think uh, PlayStation is getting much mm. better at offering these things on, on PS4 as well. So there's definitely, I recently uh, played um, Firewatch, which is really great. And it's actually like one of the main characters in it is a woman who's on the other end of the radio, and like eventually, when I finished that game, I was like much more interested in like the woman character than I was the character I was actually playing, who's like this kind of dumpy old, uh, like kind of middle-aged man. <laughs> um, so like it, it's really interesting what people are doing with women characters these days. Yeah. Uh, to wrap up, I want to come back to a point that you mentioned in your book, Simon, that I thought was really interesting. Um, you made a parallel between the outcry about the violence of video games. Um, and the 19th century um, fear that novel reading was destroying mm -hmm. women's moral value. I'm curious, why are we so scared of our leisure pursuits? 
I think video games are just so new that people are so afraid mm -hmm. of them. Like it's it's a mysterious thing still to the like to my 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 mom and dad. They still have no idea what it is that I actually do. Um, and and I think that they you know there's there's this weird idea that they might be upsetting or wrong in some way or just unnatural. Mm -hmm. um, but if you grew up with video games, they seem like the most natural thing in the world. And so I think that that's part of it. For sure is if something is an innovation mm -hmm. like halfway through your lifetime you start to be scared of it almost yeah. whereas like i think if you grew up with them then you don't really you don't really think about it too much yeah. yeah simon does it come back to what you were saying earlier about how as adults we're conditioned to not play yeah i think that's some of it it's the emergence of new medium oh mm -hmm. media is always met with this kind of resistance it happened with romance novels with cinema with rock and roll Video games are, the, are just the latest in that long line. I really hope we're past it now because it's so boring. <laughs> like, yeah. just having to. And also, what it does is for people who play games and care about them and make, make them for the past 30 years, we've all been kind of on the back foot defending ourselves against people like Jack Thompson or, mm. uh, or unscrupulous tabloid journalists who are throwing false accusations. And what that does is it just makes you combative the whole time and, mm. and yeah. stops you from actually being critical and going, like, not everything about video games is great. There's loads of stuff that we could do a lot better. There's lots of stuff that's awful about mm. it that probably enforces unhelpful um, you know, models of the world or belief systems or whatever. And, and we're, we're prevented from really engaging with that because mm. we're spending our whole time going, video games don't turn you into a mass murderer. And it's like, okay, we get that now. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I talk to, you know, I, I write a lot for the mainstream press here in, in America, and I've had many conversations over the last 18 months with my editors who are older than me, who didn't grow up playing video games, but who are like, we're past that narrative of mm -hmm. like video games are terrible for you is is passe now like write stories about what's interesting about yeah. video games what's progressive about them um and like i really hope the rest of us all catch up with that quickly yeah i mean in the book brendan chung says something really interesting he says he, we're still at the point with video games where it's that bit in cinema like that era in cinema in which like you see the train coming towards mm -hmm. you in the cinema and you think you're going to get run over so everyone runs out the cinema right. and yeah. he's like that's where we're at with video games currently where we still are afraid of what they might do but we don't stay to experience what they do actually do um and so that's i think part of it so video games aren't turning us into killers and they're not killing us either. What they might actually be doing is challenging us and making us into better human beings. Uh, please give a huge round of applause to these fantastic panellists. <laughs> there will be a book signing um, in the bookshop after this event. So if you haven't picked up these books, please do. They're fantastic. Um, and I'm going to be first in line to get mine signed. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.